you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Over the next three weeks, we will be diving into a mini-series on our discipleship strategy. Pastor Raiden will be sharing how we can be a part of the mission of God in our average, everyday lives. If you were looking for the next steps to take in your faith, this series is a good place to start. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'll introduce myself. My name is Sarah. If I haven't met you, I'm really glad you're here today. I guess even if I have met you, I'm really glad that you're here today. Both scenarios are true. We're going to be in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, So we're uh, starting a little three-week sermon series, a little mini-series here just to talk about the Red Hill strategy. We've been working through our vision frame, talking about our values. And if you aren't familiar with those, if you aren't familiar with what Red Hill's all about, there's a brochure over there in the uh, welcome area, in the hospitality area. I'd encourage you to pick it up because it's got like our vision frame, talks a little bit about all this stuff that I think would be helpful for you. The, uh, the strategy of a church just answers this one single question. How are we going to make disciples? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? Because I think it's one of those things that everybody goes like, oh, yeah, we absolutely know what we're supposed to be doing. We're like Michael Scott. Like, I know what to do. But in a much more real sense, I have no idea what it is that I'm supposed to do because... We're all just regular people who experience a Tuesday as if it's just a Tuesday, and some weeks feel like all week is Tuesday. I was with somebody recently, and they were like, I need y'all to pray for me. This whole week has felt like it's Tuesday. They're like, they're like, everybody talks about how bad Monday is, but you have like a little bit of weekend residual falls over onto Monday. When you get to Tuesday, you're never further away from feeling like it's the weekend. Like you're, you're the furthest away from the weekend that you're possibly going to be. But, but we, we want to answer the question, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do now? How do I follow Jesus How do I participate in the life and body and mission of the church? And every church is a little bit different. We all have the same mission, glorify God and make disciples. But every church goes about executing that mission a little bit differently. So I just want to talk a little bit about like what we're supposed to do because I think it's an important thing for us to know. Like what's expected of me? How do I grow in my faith? How do I make progress in my faith? How do I win? What are we trying to do as a church? And how do I fit into it? How do I become part of it? And if you're having like a quiet, kind of more reflective moment, you might say like, does God really use sinners? And I'm not talking about in the abstract, I'm talking about me. Like, can God actually use me? Because I know what's going on in my own life, the struggles and the sins that I deal with, I I know what's going on. Maybe you are here and you're like, I'm not all that special. 
I'm not really even all that particularly serious about my faith. Nobody's ever accused me of being a Jesus freak. How am I supposed to fit into anything? Perhaps other churches that you've been at are like churches that I went to whenever I was growing up where uh, my family was a, if the doors are open, we are their family. And, uh, and I, I benefited greatly because of it, by the way. I'm not, I'm not trashing this particular strategy in any way. I benefited greatly. If there was Sunday school, I was there. For worship service, I was there. Sunday night discipleship, I was there. Sunday night worship services, I was there. Visitation on Monday nights or Tuesday nights, depending upon the church, I was there. Wednesday night Bible study, Awana, uh, Royal Ambassadors, youth group, I was there. If there was an event, I was there. I was learning the Bible. I was growing in my faith. I was being exposed to all the Bible stories. And that was how a lot of the churches that I experienced as a kid made disciples. That was what it is. It was to get into those programs and then those who were more serious about their faith began running those programs and leading those programs. And if you've been around Red Hill for very long, you look around and you're like, we don't really have that many programs. Very, very few programs. And I've had people uh, that have talked to me that have been kind of like frustrated by that. Like, how are, how are we supposed to be involved? Like, where do we plug in? How do we fit in? And that's where all of this comes in. There are really two sides of the same coin that we call our strategy. The first one is that we want you to grow in your faith, and that's gonna be our gospel practices that we're working on developing right now to help you grow in your faith, and we want you to be able to go in your faith, and that's gonna be what we're talking about with our tables strategy. That's where we're starting this morning. You know, every great story has a beginning, and the beginning of Levi, whose name later would be changed to Matthew, the beginning of his story is right here in Luke chapter five, starting in verse 27. And I just wanna say before we get to this, we have Jesus uh, experiencing the story where the four friends bring their paralytic friend to Jesus. In other gospels, they tear a hole in the roof and lower him down, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The guy's laying there and can't move, and Jesus prioritizes the forgiveness of his sins, and then the Pharisees grumble and complain against him, and Jesus says, well, what's easier? to forgive somebody of their sins or to tell them to get up and rise and walk. The point that he's making is it requires more authority. It requires eternal authority to forgive someone of their sins, just physical authority to tell them to get up and walk again. And he says, but so that you might know, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks, takes his mat and goes home. Had to be a really interesting walk home. You know what I mean? Like, just like get up and walk. And he's like, okay, I guess... I have to walk, so I'm going to go now. Like, I'm just going to take my mat, and, and I guess I'll just go home. You know, like They probably had their own party, but it's, verse 27 picks up with the story of Levi. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. In the history of humanity, I'm not sure anyone has loved the IRS, and Levi worked for the IRS, but much worse than working for the IRS, he worked for a foreign nation that was occupying and dominating his brothers and sisters, his fellow countrymen. He betrayed his own country to work for this other government to tax his own people. 
And the tax code for uh, Israelites is kind of like the tax code for Americans, where you're like, I'm not really sure how this works. I just like plug my numbers in and hope nobody's lying to me, you know? And that's how it worked for them, except it was even easier to manipulate. Yeah, that's why I use Trisha, is because I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want to go to jail. But Levi could easily manipulate, there's no indication that he did but he could easily manipulate the tax code and steal from his fellow countrymen. This was a common practice among tax collectors. It was one of the reasons that everybody hated them. I don't mean disliked, I mean hated them. They were considered to be traitors. They were the original Benedict Arnolds. They betrayed their countrymen. They were cut off from fellowship and friendship. No one liked them. And here we find Levi, a tax collector, sitting in his tax booth. Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. The invitation of Jesus is clear, simple, and direct. It's always the same, follow me. I love it that he walks up to all of his disciples. He's like, follow me. And whether they're holding nets or dollars or whatever else, if they're pushing a plow, Jesus says, follow me. If they're holding money, Jesus says, follow me. And the expectation is always the same. I'm going to leave behind all of this, and I'm going to start following him. I think it's clever of Jesus, if not strategic of Jesus, that he did not say, come and follow me, and you will eventually be brutally tortured, murdered, and hated by most of humanity. He doesn't add all of that bit in, you know what I mean? He just says, follow me. That's the beginning of the story. And I want to say, I think for us, there's a little bit of confusion that can exist about this particular point, this particular point being, how can a person confidently know that they are a Christian? How can you know with confidence that you are going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus forever? And it's so important for us to know this, to have confidence about this, and I believe that you can have confidence about it. I am in no way confused about whether or not I am married to Sarah. I know for a fact that we have a relationship. It doesn't mean that either of us executes the relationship perfectly all the time. But I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, to borrow a preacher phrase from old, I know with no hint of confusion or doubt, I know for a fact that I belong to her and she belongs to me. And I believe that you can possess that much confidence about your eternal security, about your own salvation. An eternal destination hangs in the balance. And that's what makes this the single most important thing that you can have confidence about. It's more important to have confidence about this, to know this for sure, than it is to know any other fact. In all of history, this is the one that's the most important to know. In Matthew chapter 7, in verses 21 through 23, here we have Jesus. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? And didn't we do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, Jesus says, I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers, or your translation might say, you workers of iniquity. In, verse, in chapter 25 and verse 46, Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And he says the sheep get to go into eternal life, but the goats, they will go away. This is a quote. They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Levi got up and 
began to follow him. There was a starting point to his story of following Jesus. He began to follow him. By the way, this is the impetus for our gospel practices, that everyone begins somewhere, wherever you are in your faith. That's where you're beginning today, in your faith. That's where you are, and our practices are going to be designed just to help you make progress. But today, I want to be clear about how and why we follow Jesus at all. Because before we do for God, we have to belong to God. Before we do for him, we must belong to him. So how's a person saved? What does that phrase even mean? And can we know with any confidence that we are Christians? So I just want to give you some basic principles to understanding how to begin a walk with Jesus. How to begin following him. The first thing is this. We begin with God. We begin with God. Because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. That's how it starts. It doesn't start with me wanting a relationship with him. It starts with him wanting a relationship with me. In Romans 5, 8, it says God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, John three sixteen says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That is why it's called good news. And not only that, but verse 17 says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him, through Jesus, the world might be saved. That's the good news, is that God loves you and wants a relationship with you. He is the initiator. He's the missionary. He's the one coming after sinful people. As my friend Michael Bird says, Christianity is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. You and I are the villains. We are the sinners. We are the rebels. We are the ones whose sin actually put Jesus on the cross but he died for us. The second thing you need to know is this. Your sin is what broke the relationship. It wasn't something that God did. It was something that you did. And by you, I don't mean just mankind generally. I mean you specifically. You are guilty before God because every one of us is a sinner. All have sinned, Romans 3.23 says. All have sinned. Everybody. The wages being death. And then the third thing is this. Jesus died on the cross to make the payment that our sin demanded. That's why he went to the cross. Because the wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, it says all the way back in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. All of the sacrificial system, everything that was built, the law, all that the prophets spoke, all pointed to this ultimate sacrifice that would be made for sin. And it was made by the person, Jesus, everyone, all people, you and me, we are accountable for our own sins. We're held responsible for our own sins. And the consequence of sin is both the first death and then eternal punishment in hell. And by the way, in the world that we live in today, it's not very popular to say things like this. What's popular is to say that Jesus loves everyone and accepts everyone exactly as they are. The first half of that statement is true. Jesus loves everyone. But Jesus didn't walk up to Levi and say, I love you. Keep robbing people. Keep trying to please God with your own best efforts. Have no knowledge of holiness. Have no knowledge of sin and have no knowledge of repentance. No, he said, follow me. Imitate me. Become like me. If there are no consequences for sin and no punishment for sinners, then why would Jesus need to die on the cross? There are plenty of things that are difficult, that are difficult about accepting 
that Jesus had to pay for my sin, the chief among those being that I actually like my sin and you actually like your sin, and that's why we do it. And that there are some sins that the Bible says, not that I say, because guess what? You shouldn't care what I think about anything. I'm just a person like you're just a person. I'm not all that learned. I'm not all that intelligent. I'm not all that well-read. I don't know tons of history. I'm not up on every cultural fact and trend. I haven't started the arc of sociology and philosophy throughout history. I'm just not into that. Like, the day's hard enough. Please don't make me read boring books. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just, that's me. If you like that, I love you. I'm thankful for you because we need people who are into that. I'm just saying, I'm where I'm at. You're where you're at. But if I was okay where I was and Jesus loved me where I was and there were no consequences for my sin and hell wasn't a real place that real people go to for all eternity, then why in the world did Jesus need to die on the cross? It's pointless and it's cruel. If my sin didn't have to be paid for and your sin didn't have to be paid for, if there's no such thing as a standard of holiness, then why did Jesus die on the cross? God suddenly becomes not a loving father who wants a relationship with you, but a cruel father who would needlessly punish his only begotten son. And John 3.16 would say that God was so vindictive that he sent his own son to die on a cross so that you'd have nothing better than a moral example. The perfection of which you will never be able to live up to in this life. There's a standard. The standard is holiness. God is holy. It means completely different. Flawless, perfect in spirit and in truth, perfect in every intention, perfect in every word, Perfect in every action. Salvation begins when we let go of our old life and take hold of Jesus. When we stop trying to be good enough on our own and instead put faith in the good enough that Jesus was. Put faith in the sacrifice that he made on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When we place our faith and say, Jesus has paid the price for my sins, which means I no longer need to, of my own effort, try to be good enough to make God happy. That's when salvation begins. It doesn't begin because you prayed a prayer. It doesn't begin because you voted your values. It doesn't begin because you came to church. It doesn't begin because you grew up in church. It doesn't begin because you sang in the choir. It doesn't begin because you try to do enough good things. It doesn't begin because you read your Bible every day. It doesn't begin because you pray every day. It doesn't begin because you go on mission trips. It doesn't begin because you give away all that you possess to the poor. It doesn't begin because you're nice to your neighbors. It begins when you say, I cannot and will not pay for my own sins. Instead, I'm placing all of my faith in what Jesus did on the cross. I believe that sacrifice was all that was needed to bring me back to God. That's when salvation begins. And what's a Christian? A Christian is any person who believes that their sins separated them from God and who believes that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus paid in full the debt that their sin created. And then Christians, with joy, begin following Jesus. Most of the time, when we talk about what a Christian is, we talk about the after effects. We talk about trying to not sin, going to church, 
tithing, you know, giving to your church. We, we talk about going on mission trips and telling other people about Jesus. And those are all good, right, and wonderful things which in and of themselves cannot make you right with God. It's why we take the Lord's Supper on an almost every single week basis at Red Hill. Because Jesus said, as often as you do this, you're remembering me and you're proclaiming my death. You, by taking the Lord's Supper as a follower of Jesus, are proclaiming to yourself, to every person who is present, to the angels and the demons that may be in the room with us, to God himself, it is Jesus that made me right with my heavenly Father. That's what I'm dependent on. That's what it's all about. Here's the good news. No matter what's in your past, you can leave it all behind and begin following Jesus. That is a story that is repeated over and over and over and over throughout the Bible. That is a story that is repeated over and over and over and over throughout history. That's why it's called good news. Levi was the last person that should have gotten an invitation to follow the God of all creation. The last person that religious people thought God would want to bring into his family. But God is not interested in making good people marginally better. He's interested in making dead people come to life. That's what he wants. So here's the first table of the Red Hill strategy. It's my table. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. Then he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Verse 29 says, then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. Levi wasn't a good person. He wasn't religious. He wasn't a Jesus freak. He wasn't even known as a decent man. He didn't have the Bible memorized. He didn't go to Sunday school. He wasn't in Royal Ambassadors or Awanas. He had never been to Team Kid. He didn't belong to a gospel community, and nobody thought of him as an example, a leader worth following, or even a decent person. He didn't know much. He just knew one thing. I met Jesus. I want my friends to meet Jesus. That's the only thing he knew. Just think about where he was in his journey of faith. Jesus has gone into town. He's healed this guy that was paralyzed. And after this, he sees Levi and he says, follow me. And Levi just abandons his whole life. He, he leaves his post. He leaves the tax booth, which I'm assuming, listen, I'll be honest. I don't know anything about ancient Near Eastern tax booths. Just full disclosure, I don't know anything about them. But I'm assuming that it wasn't like Fort Knox. It's a booth, and I collect your money. I don't give you any money. And I'm guessing he probably didn't have change, if you know what I'm saying. Like, you have to pay me, and there's money there. And Jesus walks up and says, follow me. And Levi begins following him. And then it says, he threw a party. He threw a party. He just knew, he just knew Jesus. He had met Jesus. He wanted his friends to meet Jesus. So he threw a party. I personally, I just, I love that because I think that the image that the world has of Christians is people who uh, only smile when they're laughing at how dumb the devil is. That's the only time they're allowed to ever have any fun. They don't know how to enjoy themselves. They don't know how to have a good time. They don't know how to experience real, like full life 
They, they walk with their middle fingers down the seams of their pants on the outside. They mind their P's and Q's. They say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And they believe that the most important thing is to always be nice and to always be polite. And listen, it's important to be kind, absolutely. It's important to be polite. It's important to be nice. But it's important to know that Jesus wasn't always polite. He wasn't always nice. Sometimes he was ferocious and strong. Sometimes he flipped over tables. There are countless examples of someone meeting Jesus and then just going and telling their friends, I've met Jesus. I was over here, I met Jesus, and this happened, and now I want you to know that I met Jesus and this happened. That's the first phase of the Red Hill strategy is just that people would meet Jesus and then they would just open their home, open their life, and open their mouth and say, I met Jesus, and here's what it was like. There's another story that I love. I mean, there are countless stories in the Bible, but one more that I want to look at this morning. It's in John chapter 4. If you want to flip over to John 4, you can. I'm not going to read all of it. The whole story takes place in uh, verses 1 through 42, but basically what happens is this, is that Jesus comes up to this well, and there's a woman of Samaria who had come to draw water. This woman of Samaria came to the well at a time when people didn't normally come to the well. And she came at a time when people didn't normally come to the well because she didn't want to have to interact with people because she hadn't had a great life and she hadn't made a lot of great choices. And Jesus asked this lady, we give me a drink of water. He's a Jew talking to a Samaritan and talking to a woman that he's not related to or married to. All of this is social faux pas. You're just not supposed to do this kind of thing. And she's like, well, you know, we've been drawing from this water a long time, and they have this discussion about what it means to drink water and that Jesus can give water that will satisfy thirst forever. And this lady's like, you could satisfy my thirst forever. I wouldn't have to come back out here anymore. And she doesn't really understand. And so then they start talking about the Messiah and what's going on. And Jesus says, why don't you go get your husband? And she's like, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're telling the truth. You've had four husbands and the guy that you're living with right now isn't your husband. This is, this is not in, in first century Jerusalem, in first century Israel, in first century Samaria. This is not an upstanding person. This is a person who was marginalized by society. It's very likely that she'd been abused, that she was the victim in the story. But listen, whether you're the one who instigates the problem or has the problem instigated upon you, sin always has the same effect on us. It makes us ashamed. We're afraid and ashamed, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. That's why she's coming by herself to the well. And Jesus meets her there. And in this meeting, what happens is her life is transformed. It says in verse 27, Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. And then skipping down to verse 39, it says, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. Many believed in him because of what the woman said. She just All she did was open her mouth and say, I think he's the Messiah. Here's what he did for me. Here's what he told me. And many believed just because she told her own story. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. I really love the story of the Samaritan woman. She just goes out there. She has this encounter with Jesus. She comes back into town, and she's like, I had this encounter with this guy, and I think he's the Messiah, and a bunch of people believe just based on her testimony, and a bunch more people, even more, come and investigate for themselves. They come, and they're like, I want to hear it for myself, and then they say, I've had my own encounter. I don't believe just based on what you said. Now I have my own story of what it is to follow Jesus. Back to Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. It says, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples. Not complaining to him. Isn't this the way that it always works? If you're in any kind of position authority, Oftentimes, people will complain to the people around you, but not come and talk to you. I'm thankful that that's not the culture of our church. It's just not, and it really hasn't ever been, and that's a gift from God. But they go and they complain to his disciples, and here's the complaint. Why do you guys eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I said you guys. It just says you, but the you is plural, so the guys is implied. Why are you all, why are y'all, if they were in southern America, they were from the southern region of Israel, maybe they said, why, why are y'all eating with tax collectors and sinners? These are not good people that you are eating with. Why are you doing this? And it's because, of course, Jesus didn't come to make good people marginally better. He came to make the broken whole, the sick well, and the dead live. And he answers for himself why. It says, Jesus replied to them. Be careful grumbling to somebody else about what God is doing in your life. Because you might get an answer from God. You know what I'm saying? Like You're like, speak to me, Lord. And then God starts crashing down on your pride, on your sin, on your rebellion, on your insecurity, on your unkindness, on your wasting of time and wasting of life. Jesus answers. I just love that, right? Because they're like, why is you, blah, 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 you guys are me, me, me. And Jesus is like, well, let me just tell you. Here's what he says. It's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've not come for healthy people looking to just get a little bit stronger. Jesus did not show up for the people that were already okay with who they were before God. He came for the people who can honestly say, I know I'm a sinner and I know I need help. I didn't come For those who are righteous, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. It's so important. It's so important for us to understand the call of Jesus is not to make you a good person. The call of Jesus is to make you holy. That means that we don't use any measuring stick for goodness other than what we find in God's word. We go here to discover what is good and right and true. We don't go anywhere else. Everywhere else is an opinion. Jesus said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. And listen, 
Here's the truth. There's a, there's a passage in Matthew that talks about church discipline. And it says that if you have somebody in your church who's sinning and they keep sinning and they're in open sin and you go and you talk to them privately and they don't want to repent, you take a small group of people and they don't want to repent and then you tell the whole church and if they still don't want to repent, Matthew says, then you treat them like a tax collector or a sinner. Now, Levi becomes Matthew and Matthew writes his gospel. What was his job originally? He's a tax collector. So when we're dealing with sinners, we remember first that we are sinners. So we don't apply the good news as if it's a club to beat people into submission with. We share the good news as if it's the only source of life and meaning and purpose and peace. It's the good news. The good news though, involves me saying, I am a sinner, and I'm going to walk away from my sin. It says, then they said to him, in verse 32, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the bridegroom has, uh, will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. I just, I really like the way that Jesus uses analogies. I think the way Jesus talks about things, he takes these really complex things and he makes them really simple. They're like, tell us about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is like, it's like a tree. Somebody's like, I can't see anything. And Jesus is like, let me spit in the mud. They're like, this lady's a sinner. And he just starts drawing in the dirt. I just, I like the simplicity of Jesus. And in this moment, they're saying, here's what, here's what the complaint is. Everyone else takes their faith very seriously. But you guys always seem to be at a party. What's going on with that? And Jesus says, well, the bridegroom is here. That means the party is here. You don't go to a wedding in sackcloth and ashes. You know what I'm saying? The DJ doesn't play Gregorian chants where everyone just sits around with tissues and thinks about the complexity of life and the existential anxiety that they experience on a daily basis. No, you go to a wedding to have fun and to dance and to party a little bit. That's why you go. It's a celebration. And Jesus is like, I'm with them. Why in the world would you think that this would be a situation where everyone's supposed to deprive themselves and be super somber and serious all the time? The bridegroom is here, so we feast. The Christian life is supposed to be more feasting than fasting. We're supposed to enjoy the life that God has given us. The Westminster Catechism, which is like this extremely serious Presbyterian look at who God is and what God wants from us and what our life is supposed to be about. They said that the chief end of man, these extremely serious, learned, brilliant people said the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To enjoy Him 
to enjoy him. I don't know anybody who wants to grow up and be depressed. I don't know anybody who's a kid and is like, you know what I want is I want to be in my mid to late 30s and just think that life is terrible. And I'll never have friends and then someday I'll just die, I guess. And that's all there ever will be. No, we all, even those of us who are depressed and discouraged, we have a hope that there's something better out there. We have a hope that life gets better. We have a hope for a sunny day. Just like a week ago, Aubrey came out of the house, was taking her to school, and she's like, the sun was shining. There was no wind. It was beating down. She's like, oh, it feels so good out. And I was like, it's only 43 degrees. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that when it's been minus 20 and you get sun and no wind, you're like, luxury. Like, I could live in this forever. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... So good when the sun shines on you and you're like, it's warm and it's been cold so long. You know, there's a couple of times in the Bible, in the New Testament, when people get filled with the Spirit and they go, are those guys drunk? Are they on something? There, there is an instruction that Paul writes. It says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. It's not a don't do this because it's nothing like that. It's a don't settle for this when you could have that. Don't settle for artificially pretending to be happy and having fun. Instead, bring Jesus all the way into your life and experience the joy that he gives, the peace that he gives, the fun that he brings to the equation. The bridegroom is with us. We have life. What we experience in Christ, what we experience, that alone is even worthy of being called life. It's more feasting than fasting. That's important. It's more feasting than fasting. Doesn't mean there's no fasting. Because the bridegroom is not with us right now. You know what I'm saying? His spirit is with us. Someday he will return and then when we go to heaven, the Bible says he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. In that place, there'll be no more sickness and no more sadness. In this place, there's sickness and there's sadness, which means there's some fasting that takes place. There's some really serious and hard things that we walk through. But even in the funeral moments, there's joy. Because there's Jesus. There's knowing that there's more than just this moment. Then... He goes on and he says, it says, excuse me, he also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. Christian life isn't about minor adjustments to our behavior. You can't take the newness of the Christian life and patch it onto the holes of the old life. If you do, you tear a hole in the thing that was and you ruin the thing that's new because eventually you're going to have to wash it. You know why? Because you're going to get that new patch dirty too. 
It's going to get old too because it's still just you wearing it. And when you wash it, it's going to rip that garment. And you're going to be like, now everything's broken and nothing works. The number of people who have said, I tried Christianity and it didn't work for me. Those are people who have experienced some semblance of Christian morality that they tried to apply to their life without experiencing the power of Jesus. It's not about minor adjustments to our behavior. It's about total surrender and a completely different way of life, a new life. When we baptize people, we say, you're buried with Christ in baptism and you're raised to try again harder. No, that's not what we say. We say you're raised in newness of life. You're raised to a new life. You are made new. Paul told the church in Corinth, the old has passed away and everything is new. It's all new. Everything is different because the Spirit of God himself takes up residence inside of us, fuels us with his own power and with his own life. Not only that, but the Christian life isn't about adding Jesus to your everyday life. You don't pour the new wine into the old wineskins. What happens? It blows stuff up. You're like, I'm trying to be a good person. At the same time, I'm trying to live my regular life. And it is so frustrating. It's so maddening. And that's because you can't pour a little bit of Jesus into regular life and expect that to be helpful or good. What Jesus wants is not to be part of your life and not to be the main thing in your life. He wants to be your life. He wants to take, he wants you, excuse me, he wants you to take your everyday ordinary life and orient it all around the love and the mission of God. So no matter if you are a teacher, a lawyer, a student, a doctor, a pastor, a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, a retiree, or something else altogether different from any of those, he wants you to take exactly what you are and say, everything about me is now oriented around, it now revolves around this center truth that God loves me, wants a relationship with me, and has a purpose for me. Not a purpose for me to be somebody else. Not a purpose for me to have to fundamentally change my passions or my personality or my talents. Not a, per- not a, not a plan for me to get some other life, some other resources, or some other kind of gift set, but for me, for you, In the life that you actually have, he has a plan for it. And the plan is that you would take it, open up your hands, and say, it's all yours. How do I follow you in the skin that I have? I really like what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. That means he's saying, when Jesus was on the cross, my old self was there with him. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What he's saying is this. Once upon a time, you could have known Paul. I guess you would have known him as Saul, but still, you could have known him. But now... Everything that made me, me, has been nailed to the cross. And Jesus is animating everything about my life. The way that I write. The way that I conduct my business as a tent maker. The way that I go on mission. 
the way that I speak to people, the courage that I possess, the willingness that I have to open up my mouth and speak the truth. It's about taking your whole life, your everyday life, and orienting it all around the love and the mission of God. So here are the characteristics of the table, and we're going to land it pretty much right here. Number one, my life was changed by Jesus. If your life is changed by, was changed by Jesus, then you have a table. You have a life. You have a story. My life was changed by Jesus. That's the first point. If your life hasn't been changed by Jesus, you can't yet join in the mission of God because you're not part of the family of God. You haven't been brought in yet. You need to be brought in. The second one is this. I can tell you my story. I mean, when you look at the really great evangelists of the Bible, just the people who are great evangelists, even all the way back to Jonah, what did Jonah, what was his great sermon to Nineveh? Yet 40 days, and God will destroy Nineveh if it doesn't repent. That's his great sermon. And the whole stinking city is like, we repent. And by the way, Jonah was like, that stinks because I really hate you guys and I didn't want you to repent. He didn't even like the people. He just goes in with one sentence. Levi just invites people to his house. The Samaritan woman at the well goes into town and says, come meet a guy who told me everything about my life. I think he might be the Messiah. The second part of the table, the second part of the strategy of this table is that I can tell you my story. That's it. That's all you need to be able to do. This is it. This is the whole thing. I can tell you my story about how I came to love Jesus and about how I came to be received by Jesus, to be forgiven by Jesus. My life was changed by Jesus. I can tell you my story, and my friends need to hear this. My friends need to hear this. This is the hardest part for me, because this is the part that requires some honesty. Because I honestly can say, I know that my friends and my neighbors need to hear this. And if I'm honest, I have to say this. I don't care if they go to hell. At least that's what my actions say. I'm not even talking about you. You can deal with you. The Holy Spirit can deal with you. He's dealing with me. I don't care, I guess. They need to hear it. And I can find every excuse in the book to not tell them. Which really just means, maybe it's not that I don't care, maybe it's just I care about myself more. I care about preserving a limited time friendship that's not really based on the trueness of who I am or what I believe, rather than just being honest with them. Not even aggressive, just honest. My life was changed by Jesus. I can tell you my story. My friends need to hear this. Jesus will save anyone. That's why it's good news. Before they believe Jesus will save anyone, you actually have to believe that Jesus can save anyone. You actually have to believe that person that maybe you're thinking of that you're like, they're too closed, they're too hard, they're, they're too smart for Jesus, like they have too much you know, going on in their life, too much sin in their past. You have to believe Jesus will save them. When you believe Jesus will save them, then you can tell them Jesus will save you. They'll know that you're telling them the truth. By the way, that's why it's called good news, because Jesus will save anyone, anyone. That includes you this morning, right where you are. He'll save you. 
He saved me, he'll save you. And then the fifth thing is this, following Jesus is about joy in life. It's not trading one list of rules for another. It's about trading death and futility for life and meaning. Every one of us has a table. Every one of us has a circle of friends and family, coworkers and neighbors, classmates and employees that don't know Jesus. Some circle. And here's what we're saying as a church. The first step in making disciples, or at least a step in making disciples, a step in growing in your faith is just going to be you telling people your story. You don't have to go around the world. You don't necessarily even have to go around the community. You might not even have to go around the neighborhood. You might not even have to go around your, like, the extent of your house. You might just be able to sit at your own table, like your own actual table, or maybe your next-door neighbor, or maybe a family member. Following Jesus is about joy, and it's about life. It's about trading death and futility for life and meaning. I want you to consider a few questions right now. And I'm going to just ask you these. You're welcome to close your eyes if you want to think about them. You're welcome to journal if you want to write about them. You're welcome to keep looking at me if you want to do that or however you want to interact with these questions. But the first one's this. Have you begun following Jesus? Have you started? Like, have you started the process of following Jesus? He came not to make your life marginally better. He came to take you from death to life. He came so that you wouldn't have to worry about whether or not you were actually good enough. You could admit you're not good enough, but that Jesus did something for you. If you haven't begun following Jesus, I want to invite you right now to begin following Jesus. To put your faith in him and what he's done. Second question is this. Can you tell your own story? This is a good question for those of you who are unsure about the first question. Maybe you heard the first question, you're like, I'm not 100% sure if I've begun following Jesus. Or maybe you just would say, I can't say with as much confidence as you say, standing on the stage, that I'm part of that family, that I've done that. Can you tell your own story about what Jesus has done for you? about how you've begun following him and what it looks like today. And maybe you're like, my story is not all that spectacular. Well, were you going to go to hell apart from him? Because if you're not going to hell anymore, I would say that's actually pretty spectacular. I think that's good news. And I think the overwhelming majority of people in the world today aren't murderers, rapists, and child abusers. They think of themselves mostly as fairly decent people. And that's why they're untroubled about their eternal state. So maybe the most powerful testimony of all in the culture and community that we live in is the one that says, I thought I was good enough until I got honest with myself and realized that I can't meet the standard. Here's the third question. Do you have any friends, any family, any neighbors or coworkers? who don't know your story. Any at all who would say, who you would say, I don't think I've ever told them my story. And then the last two. How can you invite them to your table? 
Like, how do, you, how do you get them to your table? If you need help thinking about it or devising a plan, I'd be more than happy, as would Josh, as would Stephen, as would just about anybody in the room in helping you figure out how can you get them to your table. Can I tell you, one of the simplest ways is to actually invite them to your table. By that I mean just like, do you guys want to come over for dinner? Like, I'll cook for you. And when you're at dinner, don't do a bait and switch. Don't like serve the you know, appetizers and then be like, have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? <laughs> Just sit down with them like a normal person would sit down with them. And you know what will happen is you will begin telling your story. They'll begin telling their story. They'll tell you about their family. They'll tell you about what it's like growing up for them. And you can tell them about yours. And as you tell them your story, you can tell them your story. And then the last one, when will you tell them your story? When will you tell them your story? I, I tell you, the most important part of any plan is actually execution of it. The execution, the actual doing of it. Because you know what we like to do? We like to come to like situations like this and be like, Mmm, that's a good word. Yep, yeah. Oh, I, that, that one hit me. You got me today, preacher. You got me today. <laughs> okay. All right, I hear you. I hear you. And then we go out and do nothing, right? And I'm guilty of it too because I, 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 I have to listen to my own self. Like I have, to, I have to do it twice at least where I write it, preach it, and then the Holy Spirit's like, you listening? Are you, are you listening? Are you listening to your own words right now, like in this exact moment? When are you going to do it? When are you actually going to do it? Write it down. Put it in your calendar. Like right now. This is a response moment. It's a holy moment, which means you actually have to do something. Like, I, I am devising a plan because I have friends, family, coworkers, classmates, employees, employers, uh, neighbors, uh, like people that I just have... Like saw them once and felt like I was supposed to tell. Like there's somebody that I can tell my story to. And I know when I'm going to do it. Put it on the calendar. Actually do it today. Put it on the calendar today. I'm expecting some people to report back to me via text message, phone call, email, Facebook post, Instagram message. You can tweet at me, whatever, smoke signals. I don't care. I'm expecting some people to report. Hey, Please be praying for me because on Tuesday, I'm going to share my story with my neighbor. They're coming over for dinner and I'm going to try to share my story with them. And let me tell you something. God can do a lot with try. He can do a lot with try. And you might try and fail. You might chicken out at the last minute. That's all right. You know what you do? You try again. And then you try again, and then you try again, and then you try again. When are you going to do it? Because what God wants from us is a life surrendered to him, oriented around his love for us and his mission for us. But that requires movement. Let's pray together. God, thank you for loving me. Me, like act like the, the real me. A sinner and a doubter and a rebel. A person who's 
been prideful. And deceptive and dishonest, just a sinner, me. Thanks for loving me, for dying for me, for giving me not just another chance, but a new life. Would you, in this moment, Holy Spirit, spur us to action? Would you help us as we go to our gospel communities this week? Would you help us? to courageously spur our brothers and our sisters on towards love and good deeds? Would you give us some victories that we could celebrate together? Would you help us to just simply obey? Would you help us to begin following Jesus in the reality of the thing that we have that's called our life? as we take the elements of your supper, as we put money in the box, open an app and give, as we pray, as we confess, as we sing and celebrate, as we reflect, help us when we leave here to be transformed people who put some feet to our faith, some action to our belief, some deeds to our words. We need your help. We can already feel the failure coming on and the fear coming on. We need your help. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. When you're ready, you can take the Lord's Supper. You can give in the box on the app, on the, app the Church Center app, or on our website. In just a few moments, the band will come up and they'll sing some more for us. And I'll be available in the back if anybody would like to pray or to talk. You respond as the Spirit leads. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.